Good evening. Good to see you all. We're going to finish up our series of studies in the book of Ezra this evening. You can turn with me in your Bible to Ezra chapter 9. We'll be looking at chapters 9 and 10. This section in the book of Ezra lists all of the religious reforms that Ezra was involved in uh, after they had taken care of a number of things. Of course, the restoration of the temple and other things that we've studied up until this point. Uh, one of the main reasons Ezra came to Jerusalem was to bring religious reform. He knew the word of God. He had led the people. He had uh, shared with, with uh, us all that God had done in bringing him there and kind of told us about how that happened. Uh, but now we see that the big reform that he's going to make has to do with intermarriage. And I want to be clear about this. At the time that the Jews were living under the law, there was a restriction on them marrying outside of Judaism. And it's interesting. It, it, it seems a little exclusive. It seems a little strange, but at the same time, it's more of a spiritual discipline than a racial or ethnic discipline. It's important because Judaism is both a group of people and also a religion. It's important that we distinguish that this had to do with a spiritual relationship with God more than it had to do with being involved with someone who was a different ancestry or looked different or was different than you. So Keep that in mind, but as we look at these religious reforms, it seems like this was really one of the major things that Ezra reformed when he came to Jerusalem. Among other things, the temple had been rebuilt, but things needed to be restored. And so that's why Ezra is there, and we're going to study a little bit about that this evening. And this book sort of leads into Nehemiah, and when we start Nehemiah next week, we'll see that uh, then the restoration of the nation begins in terms of rebuilding the wall and also rebuilding uh, the people as well. So let's open in a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this book. Uh, many people either avoid or are not really familiar with this book, and yet there are some wonderful and powerful lessons for us in your word in every book within your word. And so we pray that this evening would be no exception, that you'd speak to our hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the people of Israel were unfaithful to God. Now, we talked about last week the fact that they were faithful to God in some ways, but in one way they were unfaithful to God. See, some of the Jewish exiles that had returned to Israel had intermarried with the surrounding peoples, and that was a bad thing. Let's read in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 9. After these things had been done, and we talked about them over the last few weeks, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Well, when I heard this, Ezra writes, 
I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled the hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this un because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. You see how this affected Ezra. This had everything to do with the lifestyle and the paganism and the wickedness of the cultures around them. It didn't have to do with the fact that they were different in the ways that we see differences, ethnicity, skin color. It didn't have to do with those things. It had to do with the differences spiritually. And Ezra was informed by these leaders that many of the people, not all, maybe not even a majority, but many of them had not kept themselves separate. Now, you know, we know, right? Keeping ourselves separate is a challenging thing in this world. It's so easy to just sort of go with the flow and be like everyone around us. And yet we are called to be separate the way the Jews were called to be separate. We're called as Christians to be separate as well. Now, Ezra had been in Jerusalem for four months when these leaders came to him. So this wasn't something they hit him with right away. Remember, he had brought resources. He had come to the temple to, to, to really restore the, the relationship uh, that the people had with God and make these reforms. But the people of Israel were living just like the ungodly peoples around them. So Israel should have dealt with these peoples during the initial conquest almost a thousand years early, earlier. 948 years earlier, they had come into the land, and they really never dealt with these people completely. But the Jews should have at least maintained their separation during the last 80 years. They had not, at least some had not. But they were forbidden to marry those that were outside of God's people Israel. According to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, they were supposed to marry within Judaism. Now, let me say a few things, because when we talk about ancient Judaism, it's true. They were under the law, and the law said they could not do these things, and there were good reasons for it. You know, you, you marry someone, you get involved in a relationship with someone, you're going to participate in the things that they participate in. You don't just marry a person, you marry their family. So if you were to marry into a pagan family as a Jew, you would be subjected to all types of evil wickedness, awful things. So it didn't make any sense. But let me also say that there is a similar command in God's word for Christians. You're probably familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. It talks about not being unequally yoked as a Christian. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Well, here's the thing. I want you to ask yourself a question. Is there something wrong with us if we as Christians even want to be involved in a relationship with someone who is not a Christian? Ask the question. I remember one time I was having a conversation with a young person in New York when we were doing young adults ministry there, and she was sharing with me how she liked this guy and you know, talking about, well, he's a nice guy. He, you know, he was religious, but he wasn't really a Christian. And what was wrong with that? And I could get into the scripture, but I just asked the question right up front. You shouldn't be asking what's wrong with that. You should be asking, why do you even want to be involved in a relationship with someone who doesn't know God or love God? What does it say about you? Forget about them for a minute. What does it say about you as a Christian that you would even consider something like that 
or be comfortable with that. I think it speaks volumes of something that's lacking in your devotion to God. I mean, imagine getting up every day and being involved in a relationship with someone that doesn't love God, maybe even is antagonistic toward the gospel. Well, some people, unfortunately, have married unbelievers. Others were married and then became believers, but their spouses didn't. And I don't want to minimize the fact that, hey, listen, that happens. Okay. But when a Christian was not a Christian and they were married and then they became a Christian, of course there's going to be that division in the relationship. But that's a very different thing than being a Christian and knowingly marrying an unbeliever. You would agree with that, right? Amen? But I'm not coming off, hopefully, as discriminatory. Because it's not about that. It's about your heart for God. Why would you want to share your heart for God with a person who doesn't have a heart for God? So I said to this young person, what does that say about you? Because it's always about the other person, you know, but they're godly and they go to church and they're good, you know, better than some Christian guys I ever met. And you hear, okay, fine, I, I believe that. And you're probably right. But what does it say about you and your walk with God? Well, listen, that command to not be unequally yoked, it pertains to more than just marriage. All kinds of relationships, business, but specifically and especially in a relationship of marriage, I think it's vitally important that people are equally yoked. By that I mean that even two Christians may not be equally yoked because of their devotion to God. One person may be a Christian, but they're not really walking with God. They're not really a disciple. Or another person may have a life of ministry uh, and, and they're involved in missions and, and doing all sorts of things, and the other person is not interested in any of those things, if those two Christians who love God were to come together, that would be on an, an unequal yoke as well. Because, I mean, how can two walk together unless they be agreed, Amos said. So let's be honest. Being equally yoked is, is about more than just whether or not a person's saved. But as it relates to your walk with God, you would think if you had a true devotion for God, that you wouldn't even consider being involved in any relationship of any consequence with someone who didn't have a relationship with God. That's just logic. Forget about the scripture for just a minute. That's just logical. But God did give the Jews the scripture to help them to walk the straight and the narrow, and Paul gave us good guidance in 2 Corinthians to do likewise. Now, the leaders, this is the problem. The leaders and their officials were setting a terrible example for God's people, Israel, to follow. And I've seen this before. You'll have a situation where there's a pastor, uh, perhaps, and and listen, I want to say this. Divorce happens, just like death happens, just like sickness happens, just like we lose our loved ones. Terrible things happen in this world, okay? Uh, Being divorced isn't the unpardonable sin. That's not even a fair assessment. Things happen, the result of sin in this world. There are people who have gotten divorced because their loved ones have left them. And there's people that made mistakes and are suffering the consequences. But having said all that, if our leaders in the church have sort of a nonchalant attitude about it, and I'm not going to say that there aren't pastors that get divorced, but when that happens, what kind of message does that send to the people in the church? I've heard stories, I've heard tell of churches where the pastor got a divorce, and it might even been, listen, there are legitimate reasons to get a divorce. The Bible talks about some of them. I'm not going to get into them tonight, but let's just say that even those reasons were 
legitimate. When we have a nonchalant attitude about things like that, it permeates the consciousness of the congregation. They start to have a more lackadaisical approach. And the story that I heard was there was a pastor. He ended up getting a divorce, and it was amazing because shortly after that, over the next few years, all the people in marriage that were unhappy, which can be anybody on a Tuesday, right? I mean, let's be honest, right? I mean, my wife and I have been married 34 years, and you're not happy every day with that person, right? I mean, most days, hopefully. But So all these people that were unhappy in their relationship started saying, well, pastor got divorced. You see, that's what happens when the leaders don't set a good example. Now, that doesn't mean you, you can be perfect. Or as a leader, uh, you, you may not experience some of those things. I'm just saying that when the attitude about these things is sort of nonchalant, of course people are going to say, well, I'm really unhappy right now, and I'd rather be with someone else. So I'm, I'm got, pastor got divorced. Why can't I get a divorce? And, I, and I've seen that happen, and certainly I've heard stories of where that happens. And that's why being a leader talks about being the husband of one wife as a, as a male leader in the church. And it's important to note that that can be interpreted in a number of different ways, but all of them come down to the same thing. <laughs> You're married once, uh, not taking into consideration someone being widowed or widower or something of that nature. But the husband of, of one wife can mean that you only, you're not a polygamist, you only have one wife, or that you've only had one wife, you haven't had multiple marriages. I think what it says, apart from exactly how to interpret it, is you should have an attitude about marriage, it's for life, and with one woman. One man, one woman. I know that's confusing today because now they're trying to change the definitions of even what men and women are, which you can't, but they... They suggest you can. But and marriage, of course, came before the definitions being challenged for man and woman. They were challenged. The definition of marriage was challenged. But you know what? Challenge it all day and long. Uh, you, you can do that all day long. Here's the thing. The truth is the truth. You can jump up and down, stand on your head. You can't change the truth. Amen? So I think it's really, really, really important that we have an attitude about marriage and about being separate from the world. That sets a good example, and as leaders, even more so. But the leaders and their officials were setting this terrible example. And when Ezra saw this, especially from the leaders, he was devastated by the unfaithfulness of the people that had returned to Israel. Here's a man that put his life on hold, left the area of Persia, and came to Jerusalem to bring reform, and he gets there, and it's worse than he thought. He's devastated. That's the only word that can be used. He was grieved. He he reacted with great emotion to the disobedience of God's people, Israel. And then he's joined by those that shared the conviction of God's word and understood his grief. They surround him, and they all grieve together. You know, I mean, it's it's really sad. I've lived long enough in my late 50s now that I've seen the attitude, the, the pervasive attitude in our culture about divorce and about certain things in our society change and things have become just casually accepted. People living together. When I was a kid, that, that, if it did happen, you sure as heck didn't talk about it. If it happened. And divorce, I mean, really, I mean, <laughs> there were all kinds of couples when I was a kid that wanted to get a divorce. They didn't either for the sake of their kids or because of the, the shame that was associated with it. Our culture has gone out of control and the attitude about some of these things has changed so much. 
And here we are, many of us as Christians, stunned, devastated by the world and the things it embraces. And that's how Ezra must have felt. He was reduced to sitting in stunned silence for the rest of the day. And then we read that Ezra prayed. He prayed to the Lord in repentance for the sins of the people that were living in disobedience. Look at verses 5 through 15. I'm going to read the whole section in chapter 9. He says, then at the evening sacrifice, so, so we're told basically all of this happened earlier on, and, and, and now it's, we know that he, the rest of the day. So during the day he found out about this, and he sat in stunned silence for the rest of the day because the evening sacrifice is when we find out that he says, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and my cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. And here we have his prayer recorded. Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, The Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he's given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. That's not talking about the walls of Jerusalem. They would be rebuilt under Nehemiah. It's talking about God's protection, God's hand upon them. But now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. You can see a man who lived in holiness, but not proud holiness. Meek and humble, but holiness because he lived a separated life. But his people were not leading separated lives. So he prays to the Lord in repentance. He felt ashamed and disgraced by the people's sins and their guilt before God. He was not guilty of committing these sins before God. Yet he felt ashamed. Have you ever felt that way about our culture? Ashamed with the way they vote? Ashamed with the laws that we pass? Ashamed with some of the things we embrace as quote-unquote normal? I'm ashamed of our culture. I don't do those things. I don't agree with those things. But I'm still ashamed and disgraced. 
Ezra identified himself with his people, and he confessed their sins just as Daniel had done, going back to Daniel chapter 9. He was fully aware that they were suffering the consequences of their past and present failures, just as we are today. He recognized that God had been gracious to them in their current circumstances. Things could have been worse. And so he confessed their blatant defiance and disobedience to God's word. He understood that they were responsible for their suffering and that God had been gracious. Amen. We know that about our culture today. He also affirmed that God would be just if he judged them severely for their sins, and yet he had not. He had been merciful. And he testifies to the righteousness of God and to their unrighteousness as his people. This is called repentance. And even though Ezra had nothing to confess or repent of, he interceded on behalf of his culture, on behalf of his people. And that's what he's doing here. He's not saying, I'm guilty, but he's saying, we're guilty. He sees himself as a part of something that's guilty before God. And and brothers and sisters, if you as Christians are saying, well, I'm not guilty of those sins. I don't agree with abortion. I don't agree with transgenderism. I don't agree with gay and lesbian rights. I don't agree with the redefinition of marriage. I don't agree with these things, these perversions. Okay. But are you like Ezra? What are you doing about it? Are you standing there on your high horse and saying, well, God's going to destroy all these people. I can't wait for it to happen. In fact, that's what I pray for every day. God will come and destroy all these crazy people. We as God's people, again, let's make a distinction here. We know that many of those people are not part of us. They're not part of the church. So I'm not suggesting you sit here and necessarily feel ashamed by some of the things that ungodly people do. But we should feel ashamed by the things that quote-unquote Christians are doing. Every time I drive past a church with a rainbow flag, I feel ashamed and disgraced. Every time I see a pastor on television embracing progressivism, liberalism, transgenderism, When I see this, I think to myself, I am ashamed. I wish they would just come out and say that they're Zoroastrian or Hindu or something else other than Christian because I don't want to be associated with it. And it's in these times that we, like Ezra, have to pray for our our church, the, the body of Christ. I'm not saying all those people are even Christians. But even if they're not Christians, they're stepping up and pretending maybe or at least speaking as members of the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, the only acceptable response is for us, like Ezra, to repent on their behalf, to cry out to God and ask for his mercy and grace. Again, that's for the church. I'm not suggesting you suddenly start praying and and associating with people that reject God, but we are still all Americans and part of this culture. and, And as Americans, not as Christians, but as Americans, we feel the disgrace of other Americans who embrace these things, right? So if you feel that way about your fellow Americans, you can vote, you can speak out, you can protest, you can petition. But if you feel that way about the church, you need to pray. In fact, you can pray about both. Pray. That's what Ezra did. Now, many of the Jewish exiles that had intermarried with the surrounding peoples, repented of their sins. And I want to break down how that happened. Let's look at verses 1 through 6 in chapter 10. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. 
Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. They took an oath, and then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehoanan, son of Eliashib, While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exile. So he prayed and fasted through this entire process, obviously. I want you to note how Reformation came about. Now, there's a difference between Reformation and Revival. Revival is what happens when someone's not breathing and you breathe life into them. Okay? that's So someone's dead and you resuscitate them. That would be a Revival. So the idea is there's a culture or a church or a state of the church that's just dead. And suddenly the spirit breathes life. That's revival. We love revival. I mean, who doesn't? People get saved. That's wonderful. But that's not the same thing as a reformation. A reformation is a change that takes place among the people of God. It's not the same thing as a revival. Revival is a moment of people getting saved and coming to God, whereas reformation is the people of God returning to God from a backslidden state. And dare I say, in the church, we need reformation more than ever. There have been many times in history where there was a need for reformation. In fact, we think of the Protestant Reformation. But there are times when reformation needs to come. We are in one of those times now. Every church that calls itself the Church of Jesus Christ should be standing for the things that the Bible teaches. And until that happens, we are in desperate need of reformation. Will we all agree on everything? No. But we can agree on the things that the Bible teaches explicitly and straightforwardly about life and what's right and what's wrong and what's sin. And we're not there, which means not that I don't want to see the world saved, but put that aside for a minute. The church needs to be reformed. By that, I don't mean become a reformed church in denomination. I mean changed. Now, revival, that's great, too, because that's what happens when people in the world come into the church and give their lives to Jesus Christ. We like to see that, too. But dare I say, it's kind of hard for revival to happen until reformation has taken place. And that's what happened here. A large group of people that had returned to Israel were convicted of their own unfaithfulness. The first thing they did is they gathered around Ezra as he prayed and wept bitterly before the temple. And they confessed their unfaithfulness to Ezra and expressed their, their willingness to repent of their sins. And that's a good thing. You'll see that in any Reformation. They were willing to obey God's law by sending away their foreign wives and children. And I'll explain that in a minute. They asked Ezra to direct them accordingly and pledged to support him as their leader. Now, there were three things that led to this Reformation. Reformation began with the brokenness of just one man in prayer. It can begin with one man in prayer, one woman in prayer. Reformation doesn't require a movement of the Spirit throughout the entire country. It can begin with one person in prayer. Amen? A person who's truly devoted to God. Because as they cry out to God in prayer, 
The brokenness of that person like Ezra, his brokenness, inspired those that feared God and his word, and they joined him in prayer. See, so it starts with one person, but then that one person is surrounded with the people or surrounded by the people that agree. So that one person starts a movement, that movement of reformation begins among the people that that are right with God. The people that are right with God. And then it begins to affect the people in the gathering of God's people, in this case Judaism, in our case the church, then it begins to affect the people that are not right with God. So how do you bring about reformation in the church? It starts with you. You, not me, you. Well, you and me, all of us, individuals giving our hearts to God in devotion, praying for reformation. Then we'll find ourselves surrounded by people that agree with us. And it might be a small number at first, But more and more people begin to pray along with you. And then it builds steam. And then, and then, their brokenness, the brokenness of the people surrounding Ezra and Ezra's brokenness inspired those that had disobeyed God to join them in prayer. And now they're surrounded by the people that need to repent and reformation begins. Now, how do you keep a reformation from happening? Conversely, don't pray. Don't be broken-hearted about the state of the church. Certainly don't inspire everyone else to be feeling the same way. Don't build a movement of prayer and crying out to God in repentance. Don't do that. Because you don't want to inspire the people who are, who, are, who are not living right with God to change. In fact, make an environment where everyone's welcome and no one's asked to be changed or to change by God and by God's power. And that's exactly what our churches are doing today in greater and greater numbers every day. They're creating an environment the exact opposite of the one that Ezra created. This man, one man, started crying out to God. And those that agree with him started crying out to God. And then those that were convicted started crying out to God. And then Reformation came. And that's why we challenge people from the Word of God with the truth and encourage them to repent. Because if we don't, reformation will never come. Ezra had the people who were living in disobedience swear an oath to repent of their unfaithfulness. And Ezra continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the people that had returned to Israel, went off by himself to mourn. Well then, in verse 7, the people of Israel repented. Well, the people were unfaithful, but now they repented. And that's good news. And that's exactly what needs to happen in the church in America and certainly throughout the world today. The Jewish exiles, they assemble in Jerusalem to address those that had intermarried with the surrounding peoples. Now they had to deal with sin. See, a lot of times we'll call it out, but we don't necessarily want to deal with it. It has to be dealt with. And the way we deal with it is through confession and repentance, which leads to change. If it's just confession and repentance that doesn't lead to change, it's not really confession and repentance at all. It's just you feel bad, you got busted, and you want to have a feel-good moment, but then you just go back to doing what you were doing anyway. It's not the same thing. Godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads to salvation and leaves no regret, the Scripture says. But worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow brings death, Paul tells us. So, what happened? Look at verses 7 through 9. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem, and anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property. In accordance 
with the decision of the officials and the elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Now within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem and on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Now here's what happened. This proclamation required all the people, all of them that had returned to Israel, to assemble. It was a call to assemble, and they were given three days to do so. Or their property would be confiscated. That was the motivation. If someone said, you got to show up, but if you don't show up, we're going to take your house, you'd show up. I got a summons to do jury duty uh, next month. And if they said, we're going to take your house or your car, uh, you know, it wouldn't be fun. But instead, they just tell you you're going to get a summons and probably a fine if you don't show up. Do I want to show up? Honestly, no. Will I show up? Yes, I will. And pray every minute that I'm there that I get released right away. Because they never want a pastor on a jury for some reason. Anyway, they would be expelled from the assembly of the people of, of Israel if they failed to assemble. And they gathered in the temple. They gathered in the square for three days, uh, within three days, of the proclamation, greatly distressed because they had been living in disobedience. See, here's the thing you need to know as a person who wants to see reformation, that sinners in God's family, those who are living in sin, who are Christians, are in great distress. That'll give you the appropriate heart to minister to them. They're in great distress. They really are. They know what they're doing is wrong. See, someone in the world, they're doing whatever they're doing. They could care less. They have a different set of rules. You could respect them because at least they're not pretending anything. They're just saying, I live according to these rules. I don't live according to your rules. But when someone's in the church living in sin, that's a different story. No, we don't take them out and stone them. We, we realize they're greatly distressed. They're living in disobedience. Of course they're living in distress, in great distress. But they're also distressed because this happened during the rainy season. So they really couldn't gather there for very long because the rain was coming down like crazy. And Ezra confronted the people who were living in disobedience with their unfaithfulness. Look at verses 10 through 11. In verse 10 we read, Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do as will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. Wow. You mean it's okay for a spiritual leader to call sin out for what it is and suggest people change? Oh, pastor, we can't do that. We'd have to close the doors. Isn't it interesting? The churches that are closing their doors are the ones that say everything goes. Because when you think about it that way, why would you even go to church? I don't know why they didn't see that coming, but that's what's happening today. But at that time, we see he commanded them to confess their sin, repent, and do God's will. That's the gospel that John the Baptist preached. It's the gospel that Jesus preached. It's the gospel that all the disciples and apostles preached. Why don't we preach it? I hope we do. They were illegal marriages that were dishonoring to God. They were illegitimate children that had no right to an inheritance from God. They're doing the wrong thing. So the people obeyed God's law, and this might seem a little harsh, but I'll explain as best I can. They obeyed God's law by sending away their foreign wives and their children. In verse 12, the whole assembly responded with a loud voice, you are right. Isn't that great when you show somebody their sin and they say, you're right. You're right. That's called repentance. 
We must do as you say, but there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Jehoshaphat, son of Tikva, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. Probably because they wanted to deal with it right away. And the other people thought, maybe we do need to take a little time. This is a difficult situation. But these guys didn't even want to wait. Let's deal with it now. I'm kind of a deal with it now guy. But you could see the wisdom in maybe not dealing with it at that moment given the rainy season, given the fact that, again, it couldn't be settled in a day or two. So the exiles did as was proposed, and Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. And on the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. Now, what about the women that had married foreign men? Well, that's a little bit of a different situation. They may not have been able to deal with that the way they dealt with the men. Let's look at this before we close. The people confessed their sin. They agreed to follow Ezra's direction as their leader, which is a good thing. But they insisted there were practical challenges involved with their repentance. There always are practical challenges associated with repentance. You have to understand that. If, if someone's coming to church and they're living with someone, maybe they bought a house with someone, and now they, they know they either need to get married or they need to separate or whatever the situation is, yet that's not going to be handled in a day or two. So you can't hold them at the door and say, you can't come in here until you get your act together. There has to be an element of wisdom and grace and practicality, and they embrace that. Of course, the rain made it difficult for such a large group of people to assemble, and it would take more than a few days to resolve it. But this would have been extremely difficult for these families. You can understand that. So they used wisdom, and they looked to their leaders to assist and direct them in dealing with these challenges. Now, a few leaders, the few leaders that opposed this plan, like I said, probably wanted to deal with the sin immediately. You always got a few people, and God bless them. You understand where they're coming from. No time like the present. Let's deal with this today. And sometimes that works okay, sometimes not so much. It's clearly best to deal with the sin in our lives right away. It is. But it's not always practical to make such drastic changes all at once. So it's, yes, it's obedience to God's word, but it's also a practical wisdom that must be employed in repentance. They decided that a more controlled and deliberate response was required. So Ezra appointed local judges to ensure fairness, and they started the investigation just 10 days later, and they completed it in just three months. So it took three months. Yeah, it was going to take some time. And then this is, this is kind of interesting. You know how sometimes when we talk about something, we don't like to name names? You know, we talk about a problem in the church. Says, I don't want to say which pastor said this, but, well, you got to love Ezra. He named names. But these people came forward and repented. And you know something? You can look at it two ways. You can say the names are included in God's word, which is kind of embarrassing if you're one of those guys. But at the same time, is it? These are the names of men who realized that they were wrong and recognized they needed to change and did. 
They, they actually changed. So before you go thinking, oh, this is the hall of shame, you know. No, this is actually a list of men that repented. And I'm not going to read through all the names here. Uh, we are told in verse 19 that they all gave their hands in pledge to put away their wives. And for their guilt, they each presented a ram from the flock as a guilt offering. It goes on to list all the names of these individuals. And we get to the last verse, verse 44, and it says, All these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. Now let me explain. This is the recording of the Jewish exiles that had intermarried with the surrounding peoples. It's not a super long list, but it's a pretty long list. Their foreign wives and their children would have not been abandoned by them. That would be wrong if you thought that. See, the customs of the time required them to return any dowry that they had received to their families. The reason that uh, a dowry was paid is that was like a deposit, and if for some reason the marriage ended, that dowry existed to take care of the woman so that if anything were to happen, she would have a means of helping herself. So these dowries were an important custom for an important reason. So they would not have been abandoned, and their wives would have been returned to their homes to live outside Israel with their children. So it wasn't like we just, you know, leave them at the bus stop, you know, put them on a bus to New York since it's a sanctuary city. No, it's not that. It's, 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 it's a little bit kinder than that. But it is pretty harsh. You have to admit that. But things needed to change among the people of God. I dare say today, things need to change. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so gracious and loving, but that you also call us to change. We do pray like Ezra as we feel ashamed and disgraced by the state of the church today. We ask that you would help us to change. And if there's not anything in our lives that really needs to change necessarily, that we would just start praying for those that are caught up in sin. And we would be surrounded by others who feel likewise. And ultimately, we would find ourselves surrounded by those who repent. And then we would see the Reformation, not just within our own church, but the church movement, the entire body of Christ not just in the red states, but the blue states as well, throughout our nation and throughout our world. Give us a heart like Ezra. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.